0: I became a Christian when I was 10 years old, and it came with a couple of surprises. Uh, One surprise was that I don't know how I imagined becoming a Christian looking different from before I was a Christian, but I think I expected there to be some kind of sort of different sense of peace in my life, like uh, in the sense of really comfort. Uh, I thought things would get easier, not harder, but I was I was really shocked to find that there were all kinds of ways in which it seemed almost as though when I put my faith in Christ, I was getting more of an attack from outside. And inside, I began to acknowledge that there were all these things that were going on in my heart that were were not good, they were not holy, and they needed to be changed. I, I struggled with things like pride and lust and anger. And uh, I found that those things didn't just magically go away when I put my faith in Christ. In fact, before those things were there, uh, I just didn't have a problem with them. I I thought they were fine. It was really after I came to Christ that I realized that this was not good for and with Jesus, and I needed to change these things. So that was one thing, it just wasn't quite as peaceful as I thought it would be, or peaceful in the way that I anticipated. Uh, I felt like the fight in one sense just began to be waged. The other one was my idea of individualism. I really thought that the Christian life was uh, much like Pilgrim's Progress, where you find Christian with a burden on his back and a book in his hand, and he just kind of takes off and he tries to make his way to the kingdom on his own. But What I discovered over time was that the church was actually central to God's purposes for the people of God. Now the other thing that happened later was I realized that this idea of peace and me dealing with sin in my life actually came to a head with the nature of the community of the people of God. In other words, I was supposed to deal with sin in my life and seek peace in community. It wasn't just a privatized kind of affair. Well, we see this kind of thing all over the New Testament, but we see it particularly in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 24, where we're looking this morning. Here we find, as we saw last week, what appears to be basic instructions that the early church would have taught new Christians. So if you're wondering, what would the early church have taught a new convert? What did they need to know? Well, I think that this list that we find in 1 Thessalonians 5 gives us a window into that. And notice that it is entirely relational. Now we created a picture to help you guys see these relationships. And in this picture, what you'll see is visualized what Paul was teaching new Christians. You'll notice that uh, you have the church, uh, which as we said before, is really a people, not a steeple, but it gives you a picture of the people of God. And and inside that church, you'll notice you have that shepherd staff, which uh, represents your elders, pastors in a local church. And then you have sheep, that's the church as a whole. And you have, of course, that individual sheep. That's you as an individual Christian in the church. And uh, as you look at this text, you'll find that there are all kinds of relationships. Ways that Paul encourages pastors to treat individual Christians and the church. Ways that he calls you as an individual Christian to treat pastors and other church members. And, And as you look, 12 to 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13, shows you how church members should treat their pastors and how pastors are responsible to their people you'll notice in the verses we're looking at today 14 to 15 that individual christians have responsibilities to the church and church to individual christians and then you'll also notice that he mentions non-christians at the end of 15 and then he speaks of christians and their relationship to god in verses 16 to 22. Now, as you look at this section, there is one major theological concept that seems to be overarching all of it, and that is the peace of God. You'll notice that in verse 13, he mentions how every Christian should pursue peace with one another. Well, then he points to God himself in verses 23 to 24, praying for them, And he ends the section praying, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now this is that common balance that we see throughout the Bible, where God gives us grace, and he calls us, as he calls himself to himself, to a kind of grit to bring about the thing that he's given. So he has given us the grace of his peace, but he also calls us to work at it, to put grit into it so that you can bring about the thing that he's promised. See, peace is not our natural default setting in a fallen world. And it's not a leap, I I don't think, to assume that the young fledgling church that Paul is speaking to in 1 Thessalonians longed for peace given what we read about them in Acts 17. Now, Acts 17 is that text that tells us about how this church began. That's where Paul and Silas went in, and they began preaching the gospel. And so many people began to believe the gospel from all walks of life that we find the Jewish leaders and a number of wicked men coming together to cast out Paul and Silas. And in the midst of that, you'll remember that they took a local Christian, Jason, and some of his friends and brought them before the city so that they could ridicule them, warn them, find them, and then send them home. Now, can you imagine if people did that to you in Phoenix, Arizona, if a mob came and got you out of your house, brought you in front of a circle in the city, and said, what are we gonna do with these people? They're ruining everything. That doesn't sound like a good Saturday to me. But I think that gives us an indication of the kind of response that they would have gotten for following the gospel in their culture. See, soul care here in this text, we find is commended and and called to every Christian. And these Christians, they are not living in peaceful conditions. Things got harder when they put their faith in Christ. And yet here, catch this, Paul says soul care is not just a job for professionals in these difficult situations. Soul care is a job of every Christian for other Christians in the context of A local church see Paul says basic Christianity means caring for the souls of other church members now that's not my basic instinct I don't know what yours is when you see trouble I don't know if your first thought is oh I wonder how I can help I know some people who are like that they amaze me that's not my like sort of superpower Uh, I'm better at risk analysis I see trouble and I'm like how much is this gonna cost like money Time, energy equity, this is going to be expensive. And you begin to evaluate whether or not you ought to run into this messy relationship or what? Run away. What if it that God's intention for you is actually not in those moments to change your geography or to send you to find a new, easier relationship to find benefits from, but to actually step into the mess so that he might change you and others. Now, I would suggest that God wants to work in the messiness of our lives. In fact, that's God's intention until Jesus comes back. It's not to abandon people to messes, but to step into them with them. As Paul Tripp says in Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, a great book I would recommend to you all, that along with Side by Side by Ed Welch, great books about coming alongside other Christians. But Paul Tripp says this, he says, we forget that God's primary goal is not changing our situations or our relationships so that we can be happy. How many of us tend to do that? But changing us through our situations and relationships so that we will be holy. Now hear me, the the community of the local church, those relationships, they are the crucible in which God chooses to purify His people and bring them a foretaste of the joy and peace they long for as He makes them holy. Holiness leads to true happiness, both now and forever. And God does that work in community. See, the Apostle Paul says the same thing here in verses 14 to 15. Now, here's our big idea. If you take notes, you can write this down. It's that Jesus calls us to care for the souls of fellow church members. Jesus calls us to care for the souls of fellow church members. If you're a Christian, he's called you to that labor. Now, we're going to see this in a number of ways. But first, uh, we're going to see that basic Christianity says that you are your brother's keeper. Basic Christianity says you are your brother's keeper. We see this in verse 14. Uh, Look with me there again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 14 at at what he says. He says this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now, as you look at this, you'll remember that Paul has just told every Christian to love their pastor and to pursue peace. See, Paul urges every member of the church of Thessalonica to pursue peace in verse 13. But here he urges every church member to pursue peace by caring for the souls of the brothers and sisters around them. Now, here's what Paul says. The peace of your local church is a responsibility of every one of us. Do you hear that? The peace of the church? Like if you go to a church and, or you're in a church and you're like, there's no peace, I need to get out of here. Well, I'm guessing that wherever you go, there will probably not be the peace that you want there, and maybe you're bringing a lack of peace with you. See, Paul's not urging the leaders or pastors to make sure that there's peace in the church. Now, for sure, pastors need to encourage that and seek that and model that and pursue that. But here, notice that he says, I am speaking to you, which is plural, you all. And just in case you don't know who the you all is that I'm talking to, I'm talking to brothers, brothers. I'm not talking about like brothers with the same DNA, I'm talking about brothers from another mother who have the same father in Christ, right? And he's saying these are the people that I am speaking to. This is a beautiful familial, uh, familial word. It describes all of those who have put their faith in Christ, those who have been adopted into the family of God, the people who have God, your creator God, who made you out of nothing as your father. That's a a unique and beautiful relationship that he is speaking of here with brothers. You've likely heard Alistair Begg say, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Well, I would say that's true and I would add to that. It also takes a whole community to make a whole Christian. Uh, What Paul says is you need a a group of local Christians who see you in in embodied forms. You, You don't just like email in your relationship. You don't just Facebook it, you're like, in the actual space of other humans holding one another accountable. Now, Paul is doubling down on this. You'll remember that he just said that Christian members should respect pastors who admonish them in verse 12. And here he is telling individual Christians that they too should admonish one another. In other words, it's not just a job for the pastors to correct. It is actually a job for other Christians. Now, we'll get into this a little bit more in a second. But for now, what this means is that the early church understood soul care as the responsibility of every believers towards their brothers and sisters in Christ. See, basic Christianity says, you are your brother's keeper. Now, you remember that right after Cain killed his brother, God came and found him, back in Genesis 4, and he said, where's your brother? And what was Cain's response? Am I my brother's keeper? And you know what God's answer is after thousands of years? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, who said, yes, you are your brother's keeper. And Jesus was the good brother who looked down on the mess of our condition, our brokenness, our rebellion, our sin. And Jesus did not look on it and say, am I my brother's keeper? No, Jesus said, here I am, send me. And he went and he came and he came and took on life in a fallen world and died for us that we might be brought into right relationship with Christ. That's why I believe Hebrews 2 tells us that Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. You might say, "Well, wait a minute, Jesus is more than a brother." Absolutely. There is none like him. He is God's eternal son who took on flesh, and yet what makes it amazing and startling that he is also able to be called our brother. It's the fact that he did that so that he might become one of us, that he might rescue us. That's the nature of Jesus. He is the good brother who came to give his life, not take ours. Now, here's the main stake that I really want to drive into the ground here at this point. That's that Christianity is not meant to be lived alone. Lone Ranger Christianity is a myth. Just like we, we all know in the end, The Lone Ranger needed Tonto. All of us, in the end, we can say that we are Lone Ranger Christians, but we need other people in our lives, Christians committed in relationship to us. So the church membership, as we think about it, as we are joining a church, we've got 10 new members joining this week. As that happens, what we know we're doing is we're actually committing ourselves to them. See, church membership is a lot like A church office, like the church office of pastor and deacon. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, I didn't want a job. I just wanted a sermon and then to go home, maybe some good food. But that's not the nature of biblical Christianity. See, biblical Christianity says that you're not just an audience, you're a participant. And God has called you to actually take part in the the work, the spiritual work of making a difference in the lives of others. And as we think about the nature of what it means to be a church member and the things that we are called to, all of those 61 and others of the New Testament. We know that those are commands that are coming to us about the way that we should love other Christians in local church community. Uh, Those are responsibilities in the same way that pastors have responsibilities and deacons have responsibilities. You also have a kind of authority uh, like comes with an office in the sense that uh, when we vote church members in and vote on church budgets, you are reflecting the fact that we are held accountable as a church before God someday for the decisions that we make. I think that's why in Reformed dogmatics, even Herman Bavink, who we would disagree with in, in some theological ways, said that just as all believers have a gift, so also they all hold an office. Not only in the church as an organism, but also in the church as an institution. They have a calling and a task laid on them by the Lord. In other words, we have an authority and a responsibility that has been given to us by God. Now, church membership also comes with responsibilities, as I said. And Paul lists some of those specific responsibilities in this verse. Did you notice the three things that he calls them to? Uh, Notice, he says that church members learn to use, we need to learn to use the right tool for the care of souls. So you are called to care for other church members, and you need to learn to use the right tool for the right job. He says again, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Encourage the fainthearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. You see, Paul says every church member is responsible for the soul care of other Christians. And when dealing with human hearts, you need the right tool for the right job. Uh, If there's anything that I could say about the human heart, and I could just, like, stick with mine, I would say that the human heart is wily, isn't it? I mean, it it doesn't quite— act like a, a tamed animal all the time. There are a lot of times where you find yourself getting sort of driven by emotions that you have to constrain. Uh, you, you begin to, to develop conspiracy theories that are not true and really weird if you say them out loud. Like you just know that your heart, it, it just does strange things. And if you add to that the fact that you're one, a human who has a strange heart, that does strange things, and you're dealing with another heart that tends to do strange things as well, things that you probably think are stranger than yours but are not, then you know how messy things can get. Well, catch this, we're not the only ones that have noticed this. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7, 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So, even in Christ, those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus and have the Holy Spirit working inside of us know that we have hearts that are still being untangled and worked on. We are broken people living in a broken world. We have people, we are those who come from broken homes, past traumas, anxiety and depression. We have physical and mental limitations. We face spiritual attacks from the outside and political oppression, as well as indwelling sin that can cause our souls to hurt. And we know that hurt people hurt other people. And so it's a messy thing to deal with the human heart. The flesh wars against Christ, calling to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. The flesh causes us to pursue a Cain-like self-preservation rather than a Christ-like sacrificial love that Christ calls us to. So don't miss this. You need help guarding your life and doctrine. I I need help, and, and you and you, we need help. It's not something that we do by ourselves. It's not something that we can do with just a quick Google search. We need humans, pastors, shepherds, a a church body who knows us to care for our souls. And God calls you to be part of that help for others. You need the right tool for the right job though in soul care. You you know this, Uh, if, if my yard man pulls up and he pulls out a chainsaw, I don't get nervous because a chainsaw is entirely appropriate to cut down a tree in my yard. but. If I were to, say, go to a dentist and he were to say, you need a tooth taken out, and then grab a chainsaw, I'd have some questions. If my heart surgeon were to come to me and say, I can help you. You can read all my bio online. Just so you know, my favorite instrument or tool for heart surgery is an ax. Exactly. And if you go to a foot doctor and she pulls out a blowtorch, you are going to run while you still can. You need the right tool for the right job in soul care too. You can terrify people if you're not taking appropriate understandment and measurements of where they are. So notice Paul says, you don't treat everybody the same. You need to admonish the idle. You need to encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. Uh, we're going to take a, a quick look at each, but let me just make a couple of observations up front. First, I, I don't think this is an all-inclusive list of the kinds of things that you're going to come across. I think just giving you an idea of the variety of things that you might face. And second, sometimes people you help can fit into multiple categories. But notice you admonish the idol. Now, just as leaders admonish church members in verse 12 here and verse 13, uh, we find that church members, here in verse 14, admonish other church members. As we said before, admonish, it, it means to correct. Uh, I know that seems like a really sort of bad word. Doesn't, hasn't gotten really good PR in our culture. Everybody thinks that Not necessarily that we work right, but just that there's no wrong. And so, who are you to tell me that something's broken, right? Like, it's just the way it is. And yet, if we really believe that God has spoken in authoritative ways, then we know that there is actually truth. And if we also know the reality about what that truth says about us, it tells us that we are sinners left to ourselves, and that all of us, even in Christ and more so in Christ, are being changed, and changed from one degree of glory to the next. Why? Because we are not yet what we shall be, and so we need correction. I could spend all morning here, but for now, can we all agree that the gospel says that Jesus did not come for the righteous, but for sinners? And from from then until Christ returns, that Jesus is transforming us, and that all of us need to change? I mean, if, if all we did was admonish, this would be a grim place. That, that, that's not what I'm advocating for. But, but we do need to recognize that there needs to be a kind of correction in our lives if we're going to be happier than we are, if we're going to be holier than we are. Because if we did not admonish at all, we'd look no different from the world. We'd have no greater hope than the world has, and yet we do in Christ Christ see, when you first repent of your sins and you put your faith in Christ, just to let you know if you're a new believer, you know that you are committing to a way of life where you continue to repent of sinful motives, beliefs, actions, and words, submitting more and more of your heart and your actions to Christ. And what I want you to know here is, is that that's not something that you were meant to do entirely alone. Do you hear that? Like, I know that most of us would probably say, I know that things need to change, but I really want you to tell me what to do, and then I don't want anybody to see the things that need to be changed. I'm here to tell you that in my life, there has been a distinctive difference between the first 10 years of my life where I I thought I was supposed to do it alone and and, and the second 10 where I had other brothers and sisters in Christ mentoring me, discipling me, speaking into my life, holding me to account. Like it was just drastically the difference that was made. And it was because of the way that God used his people in my life, some of them pastors, many of them people, Sunday school teachers, brothers who just happened to to go to school with me or teach me in in, in, in different math classes and that sort of thing. Like your average Christian doing supernatural things just by meeting with me and taking me through the word. See, I'm always struck in our new members' interviews by young Christians who understand their need for correction and accountability. Christians who say things like, I'm joining this church because I need accountability. I need to know that if I'm off track, somebody's coming to put me back on track. Is that you? Let me tell you, that's something only the Holy Spirit can do in your heart. That is not something that is intrinsically an American value. But who are the idol here that need to be corrected or admonished? Well, idol means to refuse to work. It's not as sort of toast as it might sound. It's actually a word that can also mean disorderly. Now, work is a good thing. In fact, 1 Timothy 5.8 says, that if you call yourself a Christian and you don't provide for your family, then you have denied the faith. So this could refer to somebody who's simply lazy, an able-bodied man, for instance, who refuses to work. But I actually think the context of Thessalonians gives us a little bit more detail as to what's going on here. See, socially, in Thessalonica, they had benefactor-client relationships that kind of define the culture. Here's what that means. You you have a benefactor who has power, status, and money, and they actually provide for clients who would receive their salary, their care from this benefactor in exchange for affirmation, votes, other things that they might require at any time, and as a result, the clients didn't have to actually work like the slaves did or the servants and so there was this whole relationship that was going on in the background where you had clients who did not want to work. They wanted you to be dependent on these benefactors because it came with more status, more, more privilege, more financial help. And so when Paul says, work with your hands in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, he, he's not just saying everybody needs to you know, get a job where you work, your, work with your hands. Like you know, don't don't be an accountant or something. No, he's likely telling Christians not you need a white collar job as a, I mean, a blue collar job as opposed to a white collar job. He's likely telling Christians not to serve as clients to pagan benefactors who might require them to offer support support that it could at times conflict with the gospel. And so Paul continues to correct these guys in Second Thessalonians. If you go and read 2 Thessalonians, he calls these kinds of people, these idol, disorderly because they are actually directly defying a word of God that Paul has given to them. Now you can see how multifaceted this correction might look. If he's speaking to the idol, there are probably people that are idol for a number of different reasons, right? I mean, you do know that like people can sin in the same way, but there can be lots of different motives that are really quite different, that are driving that same action, right? So somebody that's idle, it could be one person says, you know what, I'm gonna be disobedient because I don't think that God has really given me a word that needs to be obeyed, but suggestions that he's recommending. Or it could be that they were lazy because they preferred comfort. Others might not want to, to disrupt their family. I mean, their their wife and their kids had certain expectations of, you know, how they were going to live, and the money that they had, and the places they could eat, and the clothes they could wear, and man, this would really change everything. I don't want to disrupt the house, you know, like happy wife, happy life, and all. Or maybe others feared losing the status, the influence, or the power that came to them through that position that they had with that benefactor. Or maybe it was just that they did not want to look common like slaves. But Paul says each of us need to be able to come to brothers and sisters in Christ who are being directly disobedient and put our our arm around them and hug them like a father would or or like a mother would or a brother or sister would somebody that's in the family and say I love you and I'm concerned about the direction of your life I want to take my other hand while I'm still holding you and point your attention to what God's word says living in direct disobedience we we need to pray that god can help you here now that's really simplified right like life is much messier than that but we want the kind of correction that says i love you enough that i'm going to show you ways that you are living that are dangerous to deadly for you spiritually if we really love one another then we'll do those things but sometimes we don't need correction or admonishment because Paul says, did you catch this? Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint hearted. The, the faint hearted describes those who are discouraged or losing heart. In other words, they're they're still making efforts to, to honor Christ, and yet their heart is, is giving ground and, and maybe beginning to, to ask questions and be fearful in such a way that it's, it's becoming difficult. These are Christians in danger of giving up. See the Jews, you'll remember, they came to encourage Mary and Martha when Lazarus died in John chapter 11. It's the same word for encourage there. They encouraged in the midst of death. In 1 Thessalonians 4, to 12, Paul says, he encouraged them like Father, like a father encourages his kids, and he says, This for you know that we, speaking of Paul and Silas, dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, you don't have to imagine the kinds of things that caused them to lose heart. We we read about them in Acts 17 and we can imagine the other things that they face. They face deep loss. First Thessalonians, it tells us that they had loved ones who died and they were worried. What's going to happen to our dead Christian friends when Jesus comes back? Are they going to miss out on what Christ has promised? They face social terrorists who attack them for their faith. And I'm sure they face persecution for preaching Christ as king, just as they did when Paul and Silas first arrived. And you know how your heart can, can drop and begin to ask questions in those moments, right? Like when life gets really hard, you start to ask questions to God, and you're praying to God, really, and you're asking things like, God, have you forgotten me in this darkness? God, I know what your word says, but do you even care? Don't miss this. The answer for discouraged Christians. It's not just soldier up. That's not what you bring to Christians who are broken down. You don't just say suck it up buttercup, right? There's no crying in baseball Christianity. Like that's not what Paul says. He doesn't say, you know, take your axe to go and do some weed work in the garden. No, he... He says, you need to encourage them. Paul models the warmth of consoling Christians, even in this very letter. If you read through 1 Thessalonians, you'll notice how he is so careful to encourage them. And you'll notice that he's actually encouraging them with what? The word of God. In other words, he's not just saying like, oh, you feel ugly. You're not ugly, you're beautiful. No, there's a place for that. I mean, you can do that kind of thing. But Paul here, he is saying, I want you to look to what the truth is. You you get this image of a father placing one arm around a discouraged Christian and sitting and listening to their hearts and then patiently encouraging them, not with cute quotes and anecdotes, or you can do it, but with the anchor of Christ in his word. Let me give you a couple examples of this in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, If you look at 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, 13 to 16, he's telling young Christians that suffering does not mean that god is absent no he says thanks god i thank him constantly that they receive the word of god not as the word of men but as the word of god now now how does he know that that they received it as the word of god and it reflects the power of god on display he goes on to say For you suffered faithfully, just like Jesus, just like the prophets. This is normal Christianity, just read your Bible. This is what people of God face. Do you see that? I'm encouraging you that what feels strange is not strange if you read about the history of the people of God. Second, in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, Paul tells them he does not want them to grieve as others do who have no hope. And here the grieving is over the death of beloved fellow Christians. And then he goes on to encourage them with the truth that their friends who have died in Christ. They will be the first to greet Christ when he returns. So we all together will always be with the Lord on that day. God has not forgotten about them. God has not forgotten about you. He has not forgotten about us. The future is incredibly bright. How do I know that? Because the word of God says it. Verse 18 even concludes, therefore encourage one another with these words. What words? Words about the nature of the return of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, But I know that in my life, I need to be reminded that Jesus is coming back at least every day. You you, you got me? And that truth helps all kinds of problems that go on in my soul. Things will be set right. People that I love who are hurting, one day they will be restored. Losses that seem like they will never be made right We'll be made right and better. Those are promises that have been given to us in God's Word. See, encouragement is different than correction, but we also need to help the weak. Now, weak means different things in the Bible. You have to understand it in context. Sometimes, weak means physical weakness due to sickness. Other times, you see Paul himself using weakness to describe Christians that have strict scruples about the external practices of religion, like what food you eat. But we don't get wind of that in Thessalonica. I think it's more likely that weak here is speaking of slaves who held no social status, money, power, or voice. In fact, you see this used in the same way, weak in the same way, in First Corinthians one twenty-six to 26-29, where he talks about uh, those who are noble in the eyes of the world and those who are weak in the eyes of the world. Those who are weak in the eyes of the world are also chosen by God. Now, how do you help the weak? Well, I mean, there's some obvious, like, sort of low-hanging fruit. Uh, We, as our our church, we have helped women and children who've, at times, uh, needed help in abusive situations. We've uh, helped those who have needed help with uh, finances. We have a, a benevolence offering that we help those who are in need. We've helped immigrants who've sought asylum or green cards. But I don't think Paul here, remember, is is thinking about sort of mobilizing social justice warriors. Like, here what it seems to be clearly happening is he's talking about how Christians care for one another. You remember that caring for widows and orphans is pure and undefiled religion. And that starts at home. In the church, are we caring for one another in a way that tells the world that we really do love one another as Christ has loved us, sacrificially? See, in Thessalonica, class distinctions, they determined who you were responsible for. And the weak had no profit to offer clients or benefactors. No reason in culture to to help the servants unless they did their job and you gave them their pay. See, we don't look at someone who is weak and call in the professionals because there's nothing in it for us. And if we're really honest, we know that there have been those cases where we feel that, that God has put us in a strategic place to help someone who is weak. And the first thing that we've begun to do is start doing a, a risk analysis. And it could be that that's the very place that God wants to make much of himself through you and that person in y'all's lives. And when you see somebody that, that you think is, is weak, especially if they're a member of this church, you know, the first response shouldn't be, hey, there's a cleanup on all nine. I don't know who's going to get that, but it's not me. It should be, Lord, is this, is this where you want me? Am I the person to help with this? And you go to seek, to help, and to love, and to listen to, and to care for that person. And praise God that Jesus didn't look at us, lost in our sin, and say, it's not my problem. They are brothers and sisters in Christ, and God's family operates different than the world around them. Rich and poor, black, white, Asian, Minnesotan, politically powerful and weak. We are one in Christ, and we help one another. See, the church is not like Burger King, your way right away. That's not the philosophy of the church. No, the church's philosophy is theological. It comes from God. We are more like a family that's at a meal, and everyone gets a seat at the table. And when we're done, we all help clean it up at the end. And every one of us needs to be cleaned up. That's why, third, did you notice that patience is the posture? He just he ends, he says, like, these are things that you need to do along the way. But in all of this, you need patience. See, Paul ends saying that no matter the person or the tool that's needed, the posture, the posture that we need should always be that of patience. So when God reveals himself to Israel in Exodus 34, God reveals himself as patient. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. It's Hebrew for patient. Uh, that word, I, I've told you before, it's a really interesting word. It, it means long of nose. And the reason that, that he, he said that you need to be long of nose and that that meant slow to anger is because the idea, I think, was that your nose would sort of, like, continue to, to grow red towards the end as you get angrier and angrier. And the longer your nose is, the longer before you hit full tilt at the end of that nose, right? Do you have a long nose? You have a short nose. If you have a short nose, is your nose growing longer? More like God than Pinocchio. You know what I'm saying. In other words, God's patience with the fallen humanity is central to his character. That's what he wanted Israel to know. That's what he wants us to know. When we are patient with others, we actually reflect the character of God. See, part of being a Christian means understanding that we are supposed to image our God and reflect His character. That's why I think the Bible tells me that uh, I have a short nose by nature. I am impatient. I, I, I'm short-tempered. I'm quick to anger, left to myself. It takes a, a Holy Spirit work to make me patient. Or do you have a short, impatient nose yourself? See, Paul also calls patience a fruit of the what? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. So it reflects God. It's something that we were commanded to do, but it's also something that only can come from God. If you want to be patient and you're impatient, then in those moments of impatience, you are meeting with God and you are confessing, I'm not patience like you called me to, and the only place I can go to get the patience that I need in this situation is you, the God of all patience. And it's something that he gives to his people. Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and on and on. See, God's church needs God's patience with one another if we're going to experience God's peace. There is no peace without patience. If you're looking for a place where there is peace with no work, then uh, the the time that you think that you're there or that you found it, it means you're dead and that Jesus has come back. Like that doesn't exist, this side of Christ's return. We seek patience with one another as we patiently await on Christ to bring about fully the peace that we long for. But catch this, patience is a gift to be received and a posture to be cultivated. Did you catch that? Peace is a gift to be received, but it's also a posture to be cultivated. We all can grow in patience. Patience grows best in community. I just had an interview with a new member just this week, and he said that he wanted to join our church because we are not meant to live the Christian life alone. I don't know about you, but I want someone to step into the messiness of my life with me when I fall in it." But heed this warning. When you try to correct the idol and dislodge that idol or idols out of their hearts, they might get angry before they get happier in Jesus. Just might happen. When you try to encourage the discouraged, you may find yourself weeping and grieving with those who grieve and it might confront you with more of the brokenness of this world and them than you are really comfortable with. And if you seek to give the voiceless a voice, you may feel like you failed them and they might become angry with you. See, helping others will drive you to realize that you don't have every tool in your tool belt that you need for every job. And that we are more desperately needy for God's sustaining and persevering grace than we realize. See, we should never go to help someone confident that we have the answers in and of ourselves. God will use you to bring peace to a chaotic world and make you more patient with others he'll do it and working from the, the greater to the lesser hear this because we have peace with god here's the hope we can trust that we can have peace with others apart from him we cannot we should expect that uh fighting and division is normal but because of who god is and who we are in christ there is hope that we really can help others and be helped by others See, he will make you mature in your ability to help others and add more tools to your tool belt. May all of our noses grow longer together. Like God, not Pinocchio. Okay, fourth. The goal is good, not evil. Did you see that? As we wrap this up, you'll notice in verse 15, he says, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good for one another and everyone. Now, you'll remember that as you trace along in the storyline of the Bible— repaying evil for evil in a one-to-one kind of way. You've heard it in the the sense of like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that sort of thing. Uh, That's the law of lex talionis. And that might sound really cruel. You know, somebody steals something, you you chop off their hand, that kind of thing. But this was actually, in in a lot of ways, grace when it came about. Because before that, they had more of a a mafia-style judgment. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you hurt me. I'm going to hurt you, your wife, your kids, your grandkids. But when you say, I'm only going to take an eye for an eye, it means that I'm not going to come after you with vengeance and take more than what you've taken. So there's a kind of protection in that. I think we see something more that's going on here, though. Now, you'll remember in Acts 17, where the Jewish leaders teamed up with a wicked mob to attack those Christians you there get a feel for why they needed to be reminded not to seek vengeance themselves. So you know it's hard to help others, other Christians, as you're, you're looking to, to encourage one another towards Christ. But it doesn't help that there's also the enemy without, right, that's attacking. See, internally, suffering can cause us to grow impatient with others. Including our church family. In fact, I just talked to a, a church planner who um, was talking about the fact that he, he's planted a number of churches, and he had to recently shut down his church plant because of COVID. Um, they were just, they weren't together enough as a family, and they just kind of fell away during COVID. I also know pastors who've ex- experienced other struggles from without that have affected the unity of the body. I know uh, pastors whose churches split over intense political friction and social issues over the last couple of years. And as all of this erupted, you you probably saw on social media the the fights that were breaking out on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, etc. And it became this kind of space where a number of Christians and Christian leaders attacked one another as enemies. When I read Paul and his call to patience and peace, I just don't think that would fly with Paul. I think if Paul says that you have disagreements, you take them to individual Christians for their good, not for their destruction. And you don't try to lie about who they are or what they've said or try to manipulate it to make them look bad and you look good. But do you see the higher ethic that Paul is calling for here? Jesus said, turn the other cheek if someone strikes you. That's not an eye for an eye. And here Paul says, people have and will do evil to you. And don't repay evil with evil. Now, sometimes other Christians will wrong you even when you seek to help them. Paul says, don't repay evil for evil. This is not saying don't seek justice if you've been abused. Uh, This doesn't mean that, that people don't need to be disciplined in the church if they have disobeyed Christ or offended someone and are unrepentant. But if they are repentant, we forgive. But catch this. He says, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I like BDAG's definition of, uh, that's a Greek dictionary, of the word seek here. He says, to run after and make haste. I love that. Run after seeking good for others. I'm not saying don't think critically about the limited energies and time that you have and how to use those. But you need to have a quick trigger towards doing good for others. In fact, You'll notice in this text, in this last verse, that he speaks of two groups, one another and the others. It reminds me a little bit of Charles Barkley. I'm a big basketball fan. Charles Barkley used to play for the Sun, so I feel like it's fair game. And he was uh, talking about basketball the other day, and he was talking about the superstars and the others. It's just two different groups. And and here we see two different groups. They aren't the superstars. They're, They're Christians committed to one another in a local church and everyone else, those outside of that relationship. And he uses this word, one another, to describe Christians in a local church. This one another word's interesting. It's used 60 times, almost 60 times in the New Testament. And it's almost a technical term for how Christians ought to relate with one another. So you might be thinking, how can I encourage other Christians? Well, let me give you some Bible for that, okay? I'm just gonna give you a few. You can go find the other 45 or 55 later. Here's one. Here's how you encourage one another. You do good to, to one another. Encourage one another about the hope of Christ's return. We just saw that in 1 Thessalonians four eighteen. Encourage one another with these words about Jesus coming back. Sing to one another. Ephesians 5, 18 to 19. When we're together and we sing, it's not really just about you. Like, don't get me wrong, I like good music, Kevin did a great job today, our guys are gifted, Uh, Those folks that lead us, but ultimately, when you sing and you're thinking like, I don't know if I feel like singing today because I'm just not feeling it, stop for a second and remember what Ephesians 5, 18 to 19 says about music. He says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It's really about God, glorifying Him. It's really about edifying your brothers and sisters in Christ around here. I can't tell you how many Sundays I come in here, and you singing loudly makes me ready to preach. Bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6, 1-2. to Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Stir one another up to love and good works. In Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together is as a habit of some, but encouraging one, another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. More and more encouragement. And all this flows from Jesus in John 13:34 to 35, who says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And by this love, all men will know that you are my disciples. Did you catch that? You love one another, and those outside looking in will know that you follow Jesus, that you live for Christ. And what a Christ life like looks like, in community, you'll be a testimony to the power of the gospel to a lost and dying world. A huge sign saying, "Come, meet Christ." So the best way to evangelize this side of Jesus coming back, one of the most important tools, God's chosen instrument, is the people of God gathering around the Word of God. Now time's running out, so let me just leave you with two quick thoughts. First, the church is a family of the people of God called to love Christ and his church sacrificially. That is basic Christianity, ask Paul. Now, how do you do that? You can, you can do that by giving yourself to three Ps, prayer, presence, and preparation. It's alliteration, I don't use that much, but I, hopefully that'll help you remember the three Ps, right? Pray for us, pray for other individuals in the congregation, Know them. Pray through the directory. And if you don't know specific ways to pray, you can ask someone, how can I pray for you? If somebody says, will you pray for me? Stop and pray for them in that moment. Let's be a people of prayer. Be a people of presence. Here's a secret. You can't pray with somebody if you aren't present, right? Like you, you, you need to be with them as you are praying over them and for them. So we pray when we're apart, but we also want to be a part of the people of God. We want to hear people sing. We can't hear people sing if we're like not with them, right? to we want to see people face to face. You can't know somebody if you're not walking with them. So try to show up early on Sunday mornings. Showing up not because we're trying to take away from your free time, but because it's a great opportunity to show up. And perhaps you'll see somebody who shows up early who needs to be ministered to. Who needs to be cared for, who needs to be admonished, or uh, might need to be encouraged, someone who might need to be helped. And then preparation. Preparation. We have an equipping class here where we have all kinds of classes that are meant to prepare you to be a better disciple, to be able to help others better. Um, I want to give you one specific class that you can put on your calendars. It's in the month of August. We have a class that has been prepared where we're bringing in Fred Rowe, a counselor who's going to teach a couple of classes, helping you understand how to dislodge the idols in other people's hearts, how to identify those in people's lives and help them. And then also, we're going to have a couple of days during that uh, one-to-one training where we're going to train you how to sit with another Christian, go through the scriptures, and minister to their soul. So it's a one-month training. We're encouraging all of you to be there in the m- month of August. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about that at Pulse in just a minute. But a great way to prepare to be more of a help for others. All of our classes do that. Uh, this would be one particular one that we would recommend uh, you start off with. Second, notice that Paul says to do good to one another and the others. That means everyone. Now, I think the way that I understand this is that it begins with a love of Christ who is our head, and then it flows out into the local church, people that we've committed to live our relationship with Christ with. And then hopefully, it doesn't stop there, but it flows out into the way that we relate with the world around us. Hopefully, as we are being transformed together, we are brokenhearted for those who do not know Christ, who are far from Christ, and we long to see them come to know Him, to find eternal life that starts today for the glory of God. So if you're here this morning, you're a non-Christian, we just want you to know that there's nothing better than knowing Christ. He is the one true God. He is the one that can change your life now and forever. And if you haven't put your faith in him, please don't leave without talking to me, to one of us, because we'd love nothing more than talk to you about the joys of knowing Christ. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come before you and we praise you. We praise you that... We do have peace with you because of what Christ has done. We thank you that Christ uh, did not look at us and say, uh, that is not my responsibility. Uh, But he came as the true good brother and came down and laid down his life for us to save us that we might have life. And Father, you saved us for a community, for a family. And so, Lord, we pray that more and more we would feel like the family of God and more and more we would be the kind of family that other people want to become part of. Lord, do this for the glory of your name we do pray. Amen.